This is Heather Penny, and you're listening to This is Purdue. Hi, I'm Kate Young, and you're listening to This is Purdue, the official podcast for Purdue University. As a Purdue alum and Indiana native, I know firsthand about the family of students and professors who are in it together, persistently pursuing and relentlessly rethinking. Who are the next game changers, difference makers, ceiling breakers, innovators? Who are these boilermakers? Join me as we feature students, faculty, and alumni taking small steps toward their giant leaps and inspiring others to do the same. That morning on September 11th was like every other American that morning. It was totally ordinary and every day. I woke up, I put my flight suit on, I ate my Cheerios, I kissed my dog goodbye, and I drove off to work. Like, there was nothing special about that day. But I do remember on the East Coast in D.C., and it was in New York as well, how crystal blue the sky was. Not a cloud, no haze. It was just, it was deep and blue as far as you could see. No one had any idea what was going to happen. What you're about to hear is like a story straight out of a movie, but it's the story of a real-life Boilermaker. In this episode of This is Purdue, we're talking to proud Purdue alumna and former D.C. Air National Guard fighter pilot Heather Penny. Heather discusses her gratitude for her time as a student at Purdue, where her passion for flying blossomed further, and her experience training to become one of the nation's first female fighter pilots. She also shares her incredible story from September 11, 2001, when she was prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice with her flight lead, Mark Sasseville. You'll hear Heather reflect on the events of that historic day, from being selected to complete the mission to stop the hijacked United Airlines Flight 93, to being grounded after hours of time in the air, to how she feels about that day now, more than 20 years later. Heather came back to Purdue in the fall of 2022, and we had the opportunity to shoot this interview right inside a Purdue airport hangar. If you're thinking to yourself, wow, that would be really cool to see, you can see it on our podcast YouTube page. Our full video interview with Heather is posted there now. Trust me, you do not want to miss it. You can expect goosebumps from this special episode featuring this brave and relentless Boilermaker. And we are so incredibly proud to release this inspiring episode to kick off Women's History Month. But first, let's start with Heather's journey to Purdue and why she had such a passion for aviation from a young age. Heather, thank you so much for joining us on This is Purdue. We're thrilled to have you here. Oh, I'm so thrilled to be back. I love Purdue. So thank you. This is, this is going to be so much fun. Thank you. Yeah, we're very excited. So tell us about your journey to Purdue. What, what made you, you know, come here? You're not from this area, right? So how did you find out about Purdue? That's right. No, I'm not a local. As a matter of fact, I was, was growing up in Nevada and then Colorado and going through the search process Purdue came up on my horizon because of just the quality of their academics. And they had an airport. Originally, I thought I wanted to go into aerospace engineering. And as you know, I mean, Purdue holds one of the premier aerospace engineering departments in the world. It was affordable. It was excellent. And to be honest, I need a little independence from my parents. So that might have, <laughs> you know, crossing state lines might have been part of that too. Sure. But no, I mean, in many ways, some of the decisions we make about our lives and the vectors that they take, they might not seem as monumental as they end up being, but I can't begin to describe how important it was to my life's path that I came to Purdue and how grateful I am 
that I did. How do you feel being back here on campus? It's wonderful. It's wonderful to see how the campus has grown, how it's evolved, how it's changed, how so many of the things that were really special to me as a student both are enduring as well as changing because a student body is different today than when I went to school. And so I think it's great that Purdue, you know, it's continuing to stay relevant to the needs of the students today while still maintaining those touchstones that are really important to all of us. And, and as I said, are enduring. So when you got to Purdue, did you already kind of have that passion for flight from your dad or did you develop it at Purdue? Tell us about that. <laughs> I've been crazy about airplanes ever since I was a little girl. And I think I come by it honestly, right? I mean, because my dad's a pilot, a fighter pilot. And so I grew up around all that, but I'm also a third generation pilot. His father wow. was a pilot, which was partly how, you know, he became enamored with the miracle of flight, the joy of flight. So I grew up around aviation. I grew up around airplanes. I grew up seeing my dad fly. And there was really little more that I wanted to do than to be that, you know. Heather shares more about her experience within the College of Liberal Arts, her Purdue mentors, and her favorite memories as a student. I am so grateful that I went through the College of Liberal Arts because at the time I went and I got an English degree because I had a passion for literature and it was a, something that I really enjoyed in high school. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with that. But what I've discovered is that what we do in the liberal arts, the School of Liberal Arts, is actually should be the School of Cognitive Learning. Because what it teaches us to do is how to think about problems, how to decompose and deconstruct issues, how to synthesize, how to recognize patterns, how to you know, really do that analysis at the qualitative and the quantitative level. Very different than from engineering. Engineering is a, is a specific skill set, very different than the scientific process. What liberal arts teaches all of us, no matter what discipline we're in, are those critical thinking skills that we need to have for the more fuzzy, messier parts of life, which to be honest is what most of us do on our daily basis. So I can't imagine a better college to have gone to, better discipline and training to have gone to that could have prepared me for what I'm doing today. And what was one of your favorite memories at Purdue? Do you have any that really stick out or a couple that you want to share? Oh, goodness. All of us that have gone through Purdue, especially having done my bachelor's and my master's here, so many excellent memories. Being part of the first air race team for Purdue and standing at that team is really important to me, especially having seen where the students who came in after me took that team, that organization. And also the fact that Purdue, the team that I raced on with Crystal Lewis, she was the pilot, that what we did there was the pioneer for all the college teams perform, getting to participate and race within the Air Race Classic. That's especially important to me. I do have to say the faculty is another key piece of my favorite memories. How personal the faculty were, I mean, just how involved they were, not just in my classes, but in my life and helping me find direction, helping me take that next step, providing that kind of encouragement. And we all have developed, you know, enduring relationships and from the friendships that we have here. The other thing that I think is really important that uh, is a special memory from Purdue, and you'll laugh at this, it was my time as a waitress at a diner called Utopia, which is no longer in business. What I did there was I learned a work ethic that no job is beneath you. And I enjoyed it. And I got to interact with the student body, you know, from all across campus. And so it was part of 
of just being involved with who we are as Purdue that was really important. I always say everyone should be a waitress or a waiter at some point in their life. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Right. You learn how to deal with everything. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) So tell us more about you and Crystal flying in that competition. And I imagine people are still doing it from Purdue today. Oh, yes. Purdue is still racing today and they have an excellent winning record. I mean, I, I, I don't know how they place this year, but I know that they've placed in the top 10 multiple times and they might even be one of the winningest university teams in the race. But uh, getting to do that with Crystal is really special, certainly because one of the things that Purdue did was they connected us with some of the women Air Force Service pilots who were also racing. So they were our mama birds and we were their baby (laughs) chicks. And to get the mentor from those women was just incredibly special because of what they had done, how they had served our nation in World War II, and then how they were passing it forward to us. And the chance to be able to go race with Crystal, who she is just fantastic. She is a total professional, very focused, very competitive, but also just a ton of fun. And she has gone on to be very successful in her aviation career as well. So what better place than Purdue to launch us? Absolutely. Do you have any favorite professors as you look back or any other mentors? You mentioned those women that you flew with, but anyone else that comes to mind? I would say Dick Thompson, Bob Lamb, and Susan Curtis were really key in my development. Dick Thompson really helped turn me into who I could become. He fostered my intellectual curiosity. He encouraged my spunk. I was a little, I was a little wild. I was a little spunky, (laughs) but he loved that. He helped me channel that in a really productive way. Susan Curtis and Bob Lamb encouraged me to take my GRE, go into graduate school. And that was a really key stepping stone for me in terms of honing my critical thinking abilities, honing my writing abilities. Then they also really supported me in my move to the Air Force. In 1993, while Heather was getting her master's in American studies at Purdue, she learned that Congress and the Department of Defense had eliminated rules barring women from flying combat aircraft. Later, in 1996, the D.C. Air National Guard invited her and nine other pilots to interview out of a field of more than 300 applicants. From there, they selected only two, and one of those two was Heather Penny. I asked her more about this time period and what was going through her mind after this historic announcement. So when you were getting your master's here, it came out that women could now be fighter pilots. What were you thinking at that time? What was going through your mind? Yes. Yes. At the same time, I was like, am I good enough? I mean, I was in graduate school for liberal arts, failed engineering student. (laughs) I really loved the math. I was not good enough for the computer sciences. And I just have to just be frank and admit that. <laughs> but I was liberal arts. Do liberal arts students go off and become fighter pilots? But yes, they do. Yes. And again, I really have to thank Bob Lamb and Susan Curtis and Dick Thompson. They all were incredibly supportive. I don't think that was the path that they had planned for me, but they knew that that had always been a passion for me and their support helped me make that pivot. Heather went on to train to become one of the first American women to fly the F-16 and her training classes only woman. So what was that experience like for Heather? Everyone's competing against each other. At the same time, we're also working to support each other. We have a term called cooperate and graduate. And that's not about cheating. That's about supporting each other through the process. That's studying together. That's being encouraging and supporting of each other. 
noticing when someone's struggling and, hey, what can I do to help you out? Going through pilot training, which is the most competitive element of this, they were utterly fantastic, both the students and my instructor pilots. And again, going through my B course for the F-16, the basic course where I learned to fly and earned my qualifications to fly the F-16. But to be honest, going into the fighter squadron was a little bit more challenging because that's where I was truly the first and only female fighter pilot in my squadron. There was a group of guys that, to be honest, did not want me there and actively tried to undermine me. There were a small group of guys that were totally supportive because why not? And then there was a large in the middle saying, well, we've never seen anything like this before. Let's see how it happens. And so it was my job to win them over with my performance, to be the best that I could possibly be and prove to them that I deserve to be there through my knowledge, my skill, how well I knew the jet, how well I flew the jet, how good of a wingman I was. That helped, I think, prove to them that, yeah, who cares if she's a girl? Validated the guys that were the initial supporters and ultimately won over the guys that, you know, initially didn't want me to be there. What would you say your biggest challenge was throughout that time period? It was understanding and navigating the social elements of the fighter squadron. Because I always say, you know, the jet doesn't care if you're a man or a woman. It just cares if you know your stuff and has the right, and if you've got the right stuff. But the squadron is fundamentally about people and the organization, the culture of that organization. So navigating that was my biggest challenge. Flying the jet, learning the tactics, going out on our sorties, that was not the hard part. The hard part was To be honest, it was very lonely at times because in some ways it was culturally risky for the individuals that supported me to mentor me because I was the only woman. And so it could be very lonely and that was hard, but it was the social piece of figuring out how do I navigate this environment because it was a very different culture that I had never experienced before. What advice would you give, you know, you've been through this, to any females, whether it be flight school, fighter training? or just engineering, right? A lot of females are outnumbered. What advice would you give to them? First of all is ultimately it comes down to performance. I never cared that I had to work twice as hard, that I had to be 150% in order to be compared with my male colleagues because I wanted to be the best anyways. So that didn't matter to me. Was it unfair? Sure, but life isn't fair. So, you know, stop whining about it and get to work. And that ethic, I think, is really important because it then proves your credibility and it proves that you have earned the right to be there. It's hard, but that's also why it's important that as a woman, you need to identify who your allies are and reach out to other women as well. Because developing those relationships is really important to keeping your heart and your soul alive when you sometimes have to go through hard things. To be honest, a huge piece of our success in any career, in any discipline, is how we navigate those social environments. Organizations are fundamentally made of people. You can be as technically competent or technically excellent as possible, but if you cannot navigate the human landscape, there will be limits to your potential. So it's really important to establish those relationships, to establish those friendships, and support each other so that you can learn to navigate successfully those organizations. And for leaders of those organizations, it's important that they maintain their cultures to be mission-purposed. 
every organization has a culture. And that's important because that allows us as team members to, you know, trust each other, to be aligned with what our mission is, with what we're going to go do. And there are behaviors, norms, codes, beliefs, and actions and traditions that are associated with all that, that make us successful. Leaders have to be very aware of how that culture is mapped to their purpose. Because if they begin to allow that culture to diverge, that's when the performance of the overall team goes down. So for example, a lot of the super macho dudes that didn't think I should be there just because I was a girl, that's an example of culture creep. What does being a girl have to do with putting bombs on target on time? So I was very fortunate that the squadron commanders that I had, JC Witham, Mark Sasseville, they actually were very focused on, look, we're fighter pilots. And yes, we've got certain norms and codes and beliefs and cultures. We are very focused on making sure that those are mapped directly to our mission purpose. And when you do that, as long as everyone is bought into those values and codes and behaviors, it actually creates the space for diversity. Because, hey, I believe in all of the norms that we believe in as fighter pilots, and I'm going to do my best to adhere to that because I believe in it. So does it matter if I'm a girl? No. So that's actually one of the really neat things is when we focus on the mission and we create a culture that supports that mission, we actually create the opportunity for diversity and inclusion. I so admire Heather's spirit. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, she is the perfect Boilermaker alumna to celebrate during Women's History Month. After Heather completed her training and joined the 121st Fighter Squadron, her colleagues gave her her call sign, Lucky, as in Lucky Penny. By the way, you don't get to choose your call sign. Heather explains the process that goes into receiving your call sign. Getting your call sign is a rite of passage. Okay. I was going to ask, who chooses it? How does that work? You do not choose it. Okay. The squadron gives it to you. That's kind of more fun, right? Well, it's more fun, but it, it also, it's actually, it's a rite of passage because you don't get a call sign until you have become combat mission qualified. So as a young wingman, you get qualified in your airplane, but you're not combat mission qualified. You're not around. If the balloon goes up, you get left behind. So you still have to go through training. And through that training process, the squadron gets to know you, who you are. There's plenty of opportunities to do stupid stuff. And then when you pass your certification and get that combat qualification is when you are formally recognized as a fighter pilot and a member of the unit. So receiving your name is a very symbolic act. And it's either play on your last name, some kind of acronym, or some word that refers to something foolish or stupid that you did, right? <laughs> you know, to keep you humble. And you don't get to choose your name. You really don't get to get renamed. But every fighter pilot is attached to their call sign because it's that moment of recognition. It's that moment of arrival. It's that moment of becoming. Because before then, you're just an FNG, a friendly new guy. You're not really named or acknowledged. So it's really special. Better lucky than good. <laughs> And I was very fortunate, you know, before I became combat mission ready, I got to do a lot of neat deployments with the squadron. And so my timing was also very lucky, but I'd rather be better lucky than good any day. <laughs> and so the people who get the name when they were 25 and made a stupid mistake, it lives with them forever. It lives with them forever. But you can get renamed by your squadron if you do something even stupider. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the hazard is never gone. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm going to transition here to the bulk of my conversation with Heather Lucky Penny. It's her personal story from September 11th, 2001. 
When she was just 26 years old, Heather embarked on a flight that would ultimately change her life. 9-11 means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It's one of those moments in history where you remember exactly what you were doing, the exact place you were when you first heard the news. For me, I was sitting in a sixth grade home ec class and I vividly remember our middle school principal coming over the PA system and telling teachers not to turn on their TVs for any reason. We all knew it was an unusual request and we could all hear the panic and horror in his voice. I remember the fear, anxiety, and confusion that surrounded us the rest of the day as we started to learn a few more details about what was happening in New York City. For Boilermaker Heather Penny, 9-11 marked a journey that she met with pride and bravery. See, Heather was chosen for a unique mission. It was a suicide mission. She and her flight lead, Mark Sasseville, took off from Andrews Air Force Base in unarmed F-16 fighter planes intending to crash into the hijacked United Airlines Flight 93 on the morning of 9-11. See, if the two had found Flight 93, which was on its way from Newark to San Francisco, but had veered back toward Washington, D.C., their mission would have been to crash their fighter jets directly into the plane to prevent it from reaching our nation's capital. Here's Heather's story. That morning on September 11th was like every other American that morning. It was totally ordinary and every day. I woke up put my flight suit on, I ate my Cheerios, I kissed my dog goodbye, and I drove off to work. Like, it, there was nothing special about that day. But I do remember on the East Coast in D.C., and it was in New York as well, how crystal blue the sky was. Not a cloud, no haze. It was deep and blue as far as you could see. No idea what was about to happen. No one had any idea what was going to happen. Tell me about when you got that call. What were you feeling? How did that obviously change your life? We were in a scheduling meeting. I was not scheduled to fly that day, although I desperately hoped that I would have because I loved flying. I was a <laughs> young wingman. and my job to fly, fly, fly. <laughs> but I'm in a scheduling meeting. One of our enlisted troops, David Chunks Callahan, just comes walking in and says, an aircraft hit the World Trade Center. And so we all got up and we walked to the squadron bar where our television was. And that's where we saw the images that everyone else saw of the towers burning and the replay footage of the airliners hitting the towers. We knew we had to get airborne and we knew we had to protect. But the problem for us was that as the D.C. National Guard, we didn't have the chain of command that could authorize us to launch. And the other problem is that because we were not an alert unit, the United States, after the fall of the Soviet Union, had just cut the Air Force in half, literally, and dropped all of our alert units. We didn't have any missiles. We had no live ordnance on board. So we had two problems. We had to get the authorization to launch, and we had to get live weapons on the aircraft. Did anyone ever think, you know, it was an accident, maybe, that someone flew? into the World Trade Center, or you guys knew? When Chunk said the first time, hey, an airplane flew into the World Trade Center, we looked at each other and we're like, how does that happen? Right. <laughs> you know, we thought it was a light aircraft, like just flying up and down the Hudson and took a wrong turn and bounced off a building. We didn't take it seriously until he came back the second time and said it was on purpose. And that was when we saw the images. It was very clear this could not be an accident. It was very clear that our nation was under attack. And how did they choose who was going to go up there? How were you chosen to do that? In the squadron that morning, 
we had a very skeleton crew because we had just come back from a long deployment. And as a guard unit, most of our pilots were part-timers. So their airline pilots, they were off on their jobs. As a matter of fact, we only had enough personnel in the squadron to send a three ship. We normally send eight ships off to train that morning. Mark Sasseville was our director of operations. He was our senior leadership within the squadron that morning. And he was not going to let anyone else lead that mission because when the call came, we knew it was going to be a suicide mission if we were successful. And he has a gorgeous wife and wonderful, adorable children, but he was not going to lead from behind. I would love to think that he picked me because I was a good wingman, but I think honestly, he probably picked me because I had no family. I didn't have a spouse. I didn't have any children. All I had was my dog. And so I think that was why he chose me because he told Raisin, Dan Kane, and Brandon Rasmussen, his call sign was Igor, and they both had families. They were to wait until they had missiles on board. I believe that's why SAS selected me. How did you feel when he selected you? What was going through your mind? I did not want to get left behind. None of us did. So everyone was eager to go. Everyone was eager to protect and defend. That is our oath. That's why we exist. I was grateful that he selected me. What did it feel like getting in that plane that day? Can I say this? Yeah. Don't fuck it up. If anything mattered at that moment in time, it was getting it right. I wasn't trained for this. I mean, like, we don't train to do suicide missions. I had never been taught how to scramble an airplane. And since then, obviously, I have because we now have an alert unit. But the airplanes weren't ready. They weren't hot cocked. So we had to make up our procedures on the fly. I was taxiing. I had no, my radar wasn't awake. My missiles weren't awake. I didn't have a navigation platform. I wasn't even strapped into the jet. So, like, I couldn't have ejected, right? I didn't even have my seatbelts on. But all that mattered was that we got out there as soon as we could and that we found the airliner that we believed was inbound. Unfortunately, the passengers on Flight 93 had already taken control of the airliner and had already crashed it. What was going through your mind when you knew that it was a plane crash and you couldn't do anything more about it? We didn't find out that Flight 93 had been downed. SAS took us out, I don't know how far, because I didn't have navigation. This is probably a little over 100 miles. We went out to the northwest over the Pennsylvania countryside. We didn't see any smoke, which is surprising because we should have, but I don't recall seeing any smoke. And then turned us around because we had sanitized the airspace. And we couldn't afford to go any further out because if we were even just a little bit off on our axis, we could have allowed the airliner to flank us. And we didn't know that it was down. So once we had sanitized the airspace from the direction that we believed the airliner was coming from, SAS took us back to D.C. to fly the combat air patrol. And then we set up a combat air patrol with a counter-rotating cap uh, centered over Reagan National. And then the quits from Langley, some F-16s who were flying alert from Langley, showed up. They capped up at 18,000 feet and they had missiles. So then my anxiety started to go down. And then Igor and Raisin got airborne. And so then we switched up the cap from there. Potomac approach was phenomenal. This is just an amazing story of how ordinary people rise to extraordinary circumstances, stealing that quote from um, Admiral Halsey, Bill Halsey from World War II. Potomac approaches air traffic control, and their normal job is to separate airliners and put them all on little highways to take them down for a safe landing. And now here, SAS and Raisin are asking air traffic control to bring aircraft together 
and start talking fighter pilot language and using military speak. And they pivoted and did that immediately. They were so mentally agile. And then they started calling out tracks and telling us who they were and where they were going. So they helped make sense of what was a confusing airspace. And they were just utterly fantastic. So how people pitched in and began to make it all work, even though none of it was planned, it was all ad hoc, but people just did what needed to be done. How did you feel when you finally landed and were on the ground again? I really had to pee. <laughs> We'd been up How many hours? Were you? Like four. Oh, wow. Because we tanked. Okay. And we were waiting until they had more missiles to put on the second load of jets for us to take up. And we also had to wait for another two ship to launch and relieve us. So it was some time before we were able to land. I don't know the exact hours, but my bladder was certainly stressed. So then once you were on the ground, did you know that you were staying on the ground? Did you think there was a chance that you could go back up? No, we had to launch again. We were a skeleton crew. So they were going to fly us until they had enough pilots to sustain another go and then another go. And what was amazing is by the time we landed... Our enlisted crew, Sandy Campbell, she was our chief master sergeant. We called her a witch. She was fantastic. She already had cots laid up everywhere. There were like multiple thermoses of coffee. She started like a buffet line for people because she just transitioned us directly into 24-7 operations. But I knew I wasn't going to get to go, whew, that was a close one exactly. and go home. We were going to continue to fight the fight until we could reach stabilized operations. And so Sass and I were whisked off to go brief the leadership of the National Guard and then brought us right back to jump into another set of jets to take off again. So what was that work day? How many hours until you got to sleep? I have no idea. I have no idea. But on that, on that second sortie is when President Bush came back. And so Sass and I were given the task of intercepting Air Force One and then helping with the escort because he did have dedicated fighter escort. But in this kind of scenario, we had no idea what other things might be planned. And so trying to provide beefed up air security for him coming back was a priority. What was the camaraderie like that day? I'm not really sure I would call it camaraderie. We were just getting the job done. And we were all in it together and we were taking care of each other, but we were focused on the mission. And when did kind of the pieces start falling together? What had happened? When it was safe? How did that go? For me, my second sortie was anticlimactic because now I had missiles. So I know what to do with this. But we were all really uncertain for weeks. And I think the entire nation was. We didn't know... What was the scale of the threat? What was the potential for additional attacks? And so we were all prepared for anything that might happen. We were also working to transition and stabilize the combat air patrol and pass that authority over to the active duty air force because we had been operating and owning it, if you will. And so Jeff Johnson, Tuna Johnson, he was our ops group commander at the time, was in the process and, and he was working all of those details in addition with Dan Raisin Kane, our weapons officer, Mark Sassaville, um, JC Witham, who is our squadron commander, doing all of that work to normalize those operations. But for us, for all of us normal guys in the squadron, we just moved into 24-7 combat air patrol operations. So my life was Midnight to 4 a.m. was my time in the sky, and I did that for nearly a year. We talked about your dad earlier. 
So he was a commercial airline pilot Mm -hmm. at this time. Yeah. So he could have been in that plane that you went up and were targeting, right? There could have been a possibility that my dad was flying the United Airlines flight that we were targeted against. As a matter of fact, one of his close friends and colleagues, Jason Dahl, was the captain on Flight 93 that my dad had worked with when he was in the United Training Center. But to be honest, I didn't put that together that day. Certainly, I was thinking about other things. My mom was the one who began to see, like, that could have been. It never crossed my mind at the time. And honestly, even if it had, it would not have made a difference. You had a job to do? Yes. And my dad, as a, an airman, an Air Force officer, he would have expected nothing less. Walk us through how you decided to come out with this story because you kept it private for, what, 10 years? I didn't talk about that day for 10 years because I didn't do anything. <laughs> we, Miss Ass and I were a mission failure. There was nothing special about us. On the 10th commemoration, the National Guard Bureau asked Mark Sasseville to talk about the D.C. Guard's response. And he asked me to tell my side of the story with him as his wingman, right? I mean, Sass is the real star of that flight, right? He's the flight lead. He's the guy that actually knows what's going on. I'm a green wingman. I'm a young guy. I'm following him. And that's when I began to tell the story and really began to reckon with what that day meant, what it meant to me, and I think what it means for our nation. Had you two ever talked about it together prior to that, or it was just kind of, wow? We never talked about it because things got busy. We had combat air patrols to do. We had a war to go off to. We had another deployment and things just got busy and it wasn't special. You know, here's the other thing too. Yes, Sass and I were prepared to go off on a suicide mission, but anyone, anyone would have been willing to do the same thing. And in reality, the passengers on Flight 93 did. They were just ordinary, everyday Americans. They had not raised their hands and sworn an oath of service like Sass and I had. So I don't think Sass and I view what we were willing to do as special. We just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the right time, however you want to look at it. So there was nothing to talk about. How does it feel talking about it now? Is it therapeutic? Is it hard for you? It is always emotional for me and not because of me or what could have, what have, should have. I do experience deep regret, not survivor's remorse, but deep regret that our organizational structure and the chain of command and the preparation of our country, that we were so complacent that we were ill-prepared and placed the passengers of 93 in a position where they had to make the choices that they did. But I am also intensely grateful and inspired by the fact that they did, because it shows me that our American spirit is not dead and that we still understand that there are things in this world that are more important than us. And so when I think about that day, it's not cathartic, it's not traumatic, but what's important to me is that the images are sensational, they're horrifying, but we shouldn't live there because the real lesson of 9-11 should be in all the acts of heroism, no matter how small, of how people rose to the occasion and did what needed to be done and took care of each other. Their spirit lives on in each and every one, and that should be our real legacy. So it's important that we don't just voyeuristically sit in that sensational, self-righteous trauma, but that we turn it into something that can truly honor their sacrifice. 
I'm sure after hearing this, it wouldn't surprise you that our entire podcast team was in absolute awe of Heather and her story. It was so silent in that airport hangar, you could hear a pin drop. We were all mesmerized by her courage, her persistence, her humanity. And speaking of that persistence, I wanted to know if Heather ever felt nervous or worried to fly after that historic day. Did anything that happened on 9-11 prevent her from getting back out there and heading right back up into those skies to protect our country? No, it again, I, like I flew a second story that day and I went out the next day and next day and next day and continued to fly. There's something about flight to me that is so transformative. It's so freeing. It's so joyful. It's so challenging. I mean, I truly think that flying forces us to be the best of who we are. No flight is ever the same. No flight is ever perfect. Every flight forces us to, to strive, to hold ourselves accountable, to try harder, to grow. And yet at the same time is totally transformative. And I've flown all over the country. One of the things I, in a small airplane at low altitude. And so I get to see the heartland as I fly over it or the mountains. And it just, it helps me feel connected to America in a different way. And there's so much just sheer joy to me in flying. I could never give it up. How often do you fly today with your three planes? As much as I can. <laughs> I fly mostly vintage aircraft. So okay. uh, we have a, a World War II Stearman. It's a open cockpit biplane that was a trainer for um, World War II pilots, so the greatest generation. And we actually know that our particular aircraft flew at Sweetwater, Texas at Avenger Field with the Women Air Force Service pilots. And we discovered this after we bought the aircraft. So there's a really neat connection there for me between the WASP and, and my own service. We have a Cessna 170 from 1950. And so that's a little, you know, that's a small tail dragger as well. And then we also have a Bucher Jungmann, which is actually a Luftwaffe trainer. The design is similar to the time frame of the Stearman. And it's a little open cockpit biplane as well. Very, very aerobatic, very nimble, a ton of fun to fly. And so it's interesting to see the different philosophies of design between America and Germany at the time, although Bucher was a Dutch company, between how they thought what a primary trainer should look like. So those are the three aircraft we have. And so Heather continues to fly again and again and again. But what is Heather up to today after she retired as a fighter pilot? When I left the fighter squadron, I was a single mom with two little girls at the time, and I was fortunate to be working for Lockheed Martin. Okay. And so I worked with Lockheed Martin in their Washington operations section for over 10 years before making the transition to where I am today at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. Now, the Mitchell Institute is a think tank focused on national security, defense issues, Air Force issues, anything having to do with air power. And so that really is kind of my passion in life. And I love what I do because I'm not in a lane for what I can do. I can be as curious as I need to be or want to be. But what I'm doing is I'm addressing issues having to do with advanced technology, future warfare concepts, policy issues that are affecting airmen today and the defense industry, innovation and so forth, having to do with stuff from data rights and how the industrial base to how we use information to I just finished a study on how humans should team with autonomous combat aircraft to, it spans a lot of different things. And what's important to me is in my mind, I'm passionate about this work because it's important that the airmen that come after me are not placed in the same situation that I was on 9-11. That we as a nation owe it, it's a moral obligation 
to our service members to ensure that they are appropriately equipped, that they are appropriately resourced, and that they have the training that they need to be ready to be able to shape, deter, defend, and prevail for our nation's interest. After the fall of the Soviet Union, the Air Force was cut by half. And over the course of the last 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan, it's been cut by another 20%. So the Air Force is the smallest and the oldest and the least ready that it has ever been. So the kids that are doing the job today are actually in a worse place than where I was in 2001. And so I feel like it's a a mission almost to try to educate policymakers, senior leaders, and individuals on the Hill on the things that, that they can do to try to resource and ensure that our airmen are set up appropriately to do the things that our nation asks them to do. And how cool that you still get to work with flight, with the air. I mean, that's, yes. that's amazing. And you're passionate yeah. about it. Yeah, I love it. I'm not in the jet, although I wish I was, yes. <laughs> but I'm still with the people. I'm still in that community. And I'm able to leverage my experience, my operational experience, and combine that with all of the skills that Purdue taught me through the College of Liberal Arts and bring that together in the research that I do. And you mentioned you have two daughters. I do. I know one of them is on a tour here. (laughs) Yes, yes. One of them is on a college tour looking at the campus. What would that mean to you if she decided to come here? It would be super awesome to have a legacy, to have another Boilermaker in the house. It would be fabulous. We would love to welcome Heather's daughter to our Purdue family with open arms. In the fall of 2022, Heather was named a Big Ten Trailblazer and was featured as part of the Big Ten Network's Trailblazers series. I asked Heather what this honor means to her. The opportunity, the privilege of being able to represent Purdue as a Big Ten Trailblazer just blows my mind. I was so humbled and excited because just think about the amazing people who Purdue has made. I mean, Purdue is the foundation of all of us who have been here. It's the foundation. But you're one of those people. I Yeah. <laughs> but I also think about like all the amazing people. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's very humbling. It's very humbling. And after all of these years, what does Purdue University and the Boilermaker spirit mean to Heather? What I love about the Boilermaker spirit is that we're kind of gritty and rough and tumble, but we're really <laughs> good at what we do. And we're leaders. We are innovators. So there's nothing that we can't do. And we're willing to get our fingernails dirty to do it if we have to. So to me, that's really kind of where we bring all this thought leadership and innovation and research and experimentation and like put it to the test. Who do you think of when you think of Purdue? Is there any particular person? Is it a group of people? Oh my goodness. I don't think of Purdue as a particular person because I don't think we can. Purdue is a spirit. Purdue is an ethos. Purdue becomes part of every single one of us who has been here. Although I have memories of individual people, what I think of when I think of Purdue, it's, it's that spirit. Last question. Why are you proud to be a Boilermaker? Why wouldn't I be proud to be a Boilermaker? <laughs> I mean, it's all the things that we've talked about, what a Boilermaker means, what Purdue means, everything that we stand for, the excellence, the research, the innovation, the creativity, and the thought. Also, like if you look at just how Purdue is trying to make education affordable to the broader population and keeping the cost down, that to me is an important piece of the legacy as well as is just that pragmatic view of how we can take education, make it available and accessible to people so that they can grow in their own lives and their own future. So there's so much about Purdue that is meaningful to me, not just because of the legacy and the heritage that we've come from, but what they've done since I've graduated and the direction that Purdue is going. So it's just, 
It's exciting to be able to call this my alma mater and exciting to be here being honored by Purdue, by the College of Liberal Arts as a distinguished alumna, and exciting to see where the university is going. It's like you go out and you meet these kids and you go, man, they're going to go do great things for this world. Yes, we have some of them here right now as as our lovely interns. (laughs) Is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners? Boiler up. (laughs) Perfect ending. (laughs) Well, thank you. We appreciate it. That was awesome. Oh, thank you. This has really been an honor. Thank you so much. Why wouldn't I be proud to be a Boilermaker? One of the best answers we've heard yet. We can't thank Heather enough for taking the time to sit down with our This Is Purdue team. We were also honored to have Heather's dad, John Penny, with us that day. John was an Air Force Colonel and former United Airlines pilot. You truly do not want to miss out on watching this airport hangar interview experience with Heather. Head over to our new podcast YouTube page, youtube.com slash at sign, this is Purdue, to see the full interview. You can also check out our shorter promo videos and a lot more with Heather Penny. And remember, follow us on your favorite podcast platform to never miss an episode. This is Purdue is hosted and written by me, Kate Young. Our podcast video lead is Ted Schellenberger in collaboration with John Garcia and Thad Boone. For Heather's episode, we also had additional assistance from Lars Petersdorf, Michael Robb, Pablo Vila, Carly Eastman, Kirsten Worst, and Sophie Ritz. Heather Penny's feature article on our Persistent Pursuit website was written by David Ching. Our podcast social media marketing is led by Ashley Schroyer. Our lead podcast photographer is John Underwood. Our podcast design is led by Caitlin Freeville. Our podcast team project manager is Emily Jesselitis. Our podcast YouTube promotion is managed by Megan Hoskins and Kirsten Borst. And our podcast research is led by our This Is Purdue intern, Sophie Ritz. Thanks for listening to This Is Purdue. For more information on this episode, visit our website at purdue.edu slash podcast. There, you can head over to your favorite podcast app to subscribe and leave us a review. And as always, boiler up. <laughs>